Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Rebecca Lim. The Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. Two SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Guntingara people, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to those lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. Rebecca Lim is the author of more than 20 books. She writes, she's a lawyer, she's an illustrator and an editor. Her work includes The Astrologer's Daughter and the Mercy series, and it's been listed for the PM's Literary Awards, the Indies, and the Aurelius Awards. Rebecca, though, has a new book out. Today, we're going to be discussing Tiger Daughter. Wern and Henry are friends. They're drawn together as the children of migrants, as well as by shared dreams of escaping their suburban school and its petty racism. Wern loves to read and draw, but her father sees these as frivolous pursuits. So she and Henry dream of sitting the selective schools exam and escaping to a high school that will nurture their talents and offer them something more. Their plan's on track, even if Wern hasn't told her parents, until one day when Henry doesn't turn up to school. Join me as we discover Rebecca Lim's Tiger Daughter. Rebecca, thank you so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Andrew. Really, really happy to be here. Now, I'd be remiss to not sort of mention the hashtag love OzYA because you have got a fan. This is a fantastic book for young adults. One and Henry, their friends, they're drawn together as the children of refugees, as well as by shared dreams of escaping their suburban school. One loves to read and draw, but her father, he sees these things as frivolous pursuits. So one and Henry, they're dreaming of sitting the selective schools exam. They want to escape to a high school that's going to nurture their talent, talents and offer them something beyond this, like we talked off air, uh, this book made me cry. This book made me smile. It is fantastic. I want to actually, I want to start off though, because you deal with so many incredible issues that are so important to all of our lives. And like so much YA, it's it's because it's got a young protagonist. It's not because not everyone should be reading it. Um, and I want to put a content warning on because we will uh, be moving into areas. We'll be discussing things like mental health. And also mention that if this brings up the, anything for the listener, that they can call Lifeline on 131114. Lifeline have been such an amazing resource for people for many years, and particularly, I guess, over this period that we've had been dealing with COVID and lockdown. So, look, if this conversation brings up anything for you, know that Lifeline are there. Rebecca, Juan and Henry, they're, they're both the children of refugees, and this identity, it's drilled into them at school, whether they want it or not. I feel like that's probably going to be a little uncomfortable for many listeners who may have found themselves on the receiving end, or perhaps if they're willing to acknowledge it themselves, um, perhaps on the bullying side of that. At home, they're made to feel that situation, though, in a different way. One's father's bitterness at failing his medical specialist exam, it leaves him aloof and often abusive with his family. He's very, he's very angry and very shouty. Australia, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a country that seems almost gleefully ignorant 
at the t- at, at times of the lives, the struggles, and the poor treatment of non-white migrants. Did you want to highlight these issues as part of the lives of everyday Australians? I did actually. Um, uh, just to clarify, they're, they're actually first-generation migrants, um, economic migrants rather than um, refugees. But I, I'm hoping that the book speaks to first-generation and second-generation children who are either migrant or refugee because it does speak about an Australian kind of story that we don't often see in published literature for children and young adults. Often we'll get, you know, the issues book that sort of talks about, you know, the very well-off person who has to choose between two hot boyfriends or we'll get, you know, very mainstream narratives. And I guess I wrote the book actually out of a sense of rage because um, I remember going to my daughter's year seven, um, you know, English parent-teacher interview and they said, um, we've, we've done a tailored book list for your daughter um, here's uh, here's a book list. Have a read. And so on the book list was books like you know playing Beatty Bow, um, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Forgetting of Wisdom. And I went to the same school over thirty years ago. And I remember when I was in Year Seven, those were exactly the same books I read. And so in thirty years, nothing had changed in relation to what we were teaching our children. And my daughter is at a school which is over fifty percent Asian or South Asian. So for them to be getting the same book list I was getting, you know, three decades ago. Is, is a pretty sad indictment of where our publishing sort of gone. It hasn't moved that quickly. Um, I think in the 1950s in America, um, educators were already saying, are our books too white for children? And they still are. So for me, it was a really personal thing. I have a daughter in primary school and a daughter in high school, and they are still not seeing their own lives reflected in the books that they're being given and studying. So that's kind of where that came from. I'm a first-generation person. It's taken me years to process, you know, the kinds of casual racism and other racism I've dealt with over my life. Um, my daughters don't get it so badly now, obviously, because they are sort of, you know, there's more of them at school, basically. But it, it's speaking to those kids who have to walk in those two universes of, you know, the kind of white mainstream affluent world that they have to navigate and then the kind of home and cultural and traditional things that they have to navigate in the private sphere. So it's kind of trying to deal with a few things at once. I feel like there's this idea around narrative. People like to talk about the universality of a narrative, and that's almost like a a golden egg of storytelling that somehow a a story will relate to everyone. But I want to interrogate that a little bit. Now, you're you're a co-founder of Voices from the Intersection. It's an initiative to support emerging YA and children's authors and illustrators who are are First Nations, people of colour, LGBTIQA+, or, or authors living with a disability. Can you talk to me a little bit about intersectionality? What is it? And, and why is it so important to approach a story like one's with an understanding of the various pressures that she has on her life because of the multiple identities that she carries? Yep. So with intersectionality, which is, I think, a term that was coined in um, sort of uh, the 1980s by a legal um, academic in America who's um, African-American, um, essentially, some people um, will will be sort of subject to multiple systems of, I guess, discrimination. So if you're female and you're refugee or you're female and you're LGBT, you're standing at an intersection of where, for example, you're subject to sexism and you're also subject to um, you know gender discrimination or racial discrimination. So intersectionality um, is something that can affect certain readers and writers because they aren't from the dominant narrative. They're not, you know, male, straight, white. 
So to assume that a story that's written by a male straight white person will necessarily speak to them is a bit of a sort of unnuanced mistake, I suppose. So intersectionality is important because you'll see that, you know, nowadays kids are sort of turning away from books, for example, and, and going on to manga or, you know, slam poetry or rap or, or other things that speak to their lived experience. And that's because I think a lot of, you know, a lot of the books that we publish, they still just speak to that dominant voice. And they don't recognize that, you know, a gay black woman in America wouldn't necessarily want to read about, you know, the, the sexual tribulations of a white male author. Um, it's that kind of recognition of we're trying to speak to everyone alive rather than we're just trying to speak to this very kind of specific, you know, market that we've always been publishing for and that we've always been marketing to. But that's kind of wrong in this day and age because I think people like me, for example, I've been here over 40 years now. Um, we're actually tr trying to agitate for, you know, a wider understanding of what an Australian person is and also a wider understanding of what an Australian story is because you'll get your children to read if they can see themselves reflected in the stories that they're given. You begin in a remedial English class. Juan doesn't need yeah. this class. She's attending because she's there to help Henry. And I felt, mm -hmm. like, I felt like in this class you show us a glimpse of the forces driving the world that you're building for one and for Henry. Communication is, I, I thought, the key in the world of Tiger Daughter. One must negotiate the dynamics of who gets to communicate, what they say or what is said, the clarity of their message and who is listened to. She experiences this at school. She particularly experiences this at home and how she gets to have a say in her life. So how does communication work in a world that must navigate not only these differences in languages, but also those generations and power dynamics? Communication is super important. And I guess there's a real sort of patriarchal drive, I guess, for um, schools when they're trying to sort of bring migrant and refugee, refugee children up, up to scratch, you know, so to speak. There's often, you know, before school kind of classes, which are trying to like drag them up to the standard of so-called normal students. And so, like, I really um, wanted to show that, you know, apart from, you know, the normal school day that most children will experience, there's all these other children who are desperately trying to catch up and, you know, become like them and, and stand on a level playing field with other people just so that they can get through their day. Um, and so I wanted to show with Wun going to the class um, for people like Henry and other recent, you know, arrivals to Australia. I wanted to show the different levels that you can possibly get in a migrant child. So, you know, when they come, they have no kind of, um, they've got no way to sort of navigate things. But, you know, the longer they're here and the more they pick up and the more interested they are in actually understanding power structures, for example, they become more and more fluent in the language that, you know, everybody else is speaking. And so for me, for example, um, when I came, I didn't speak English. And so it took me years to work out, you know, why is that teacher giving us apples and milk at this time of the day? You know, why do people get dragged off home when they wet their pants, for example? So you're looking at all this stuff happening visually and trying to work out exactly what the teacher's doing and, you know, how, why are things structured this way? Um, and so I started the novel off with that feeling of once you become more fluent in the dominant language, it helps you navigate that external sphere of your life much more easily than you could have done before. But that fluency in the outside world doesn't necessarily translate to the, the private sphere that you live in because maybe your parents aren't interested in what's happening at school. They're not interested in you getting, you know, different opinions from them. 
they're not interested in learning about, you know, what the dominant narrative is because they've, they've got their own concerns. They're trying to put food on the table. You know, they're trying to, like, deal with their network. Um, it's that kind of, you know, interrogation of, I guess, relative fluency. You only gain power in this society if you are fluent in the language that people speak in. And for me, that's been a very personal journey too. I quite deliberately did law because, one, I'm interested in language. And two, it's that I want to understand how stuff works. I want to know why people contract. I want to know why government works this way and why people talk to each other this way and why do documents look like this. And I could not have done that if I'd been, you know, a doctor, for example, which was the way I was being pushed as every other migrant Chinese kid is being pushed in that direction. Fluency also, I was so interested by the way you explored the idea of of access. And Mm -hmm. for Henry very much, at the moment for him, he he understands himself as... A, com- a good communicator, and there's a real. I, I'm just coming back to that very first section where the mm-hmm. teacher, Mr. Cornish, uh, big beard, straight out of um, educate, straight straight out of teacher school, proper hipster. He he wants to reach these kids, but his his questions are not cutting through, and and Henry just wants to respond uh, in Chinese in a completely appropriate way that he can understand. He's a good communicator. Mm. He needs to learn English. So as, as one describes it, he can get an A to match all the other A's. He is an open person. And I contrast him with one's father who very much shuts down communication. His way of being competent is to shut down as many challenging aspects so that he can control the things that that he communicates about and that he opens himself up to, and that that becomes ultimately very important and a very important part of his arc in communication. Okay. Um, that was just uh, I just I'm as you spoke there, I realized on how many levels language was working, and and in a similar way, culture um, seems to be a flashpoint in Tiger Daughter. I saw through selected quote, quotations from Confucius and Lao Tzu, one's father, mm-hmm. he tries to reinforce a version of his culture, maybe the yep. way he was brought up, the way he understands it, an upbringing that controls and reinforces his belief. One, however, mm-hmm. on several occasions, seems to turn these beliefs around, turn these sayings that are flicked at her around, to find a kinder and more open philosophy that allows her to support her friend, to support her mother, to empower her mother. Mm-hmm. I wondered about this use of culture and maybe just the way you see culture operating more generally in society. Has it been has it been weaponized? Are we daily just looking for justifications of our own behavior? Or is there something more essential about culture that you, you're trying to get to here? I think what I'm, I'm trying to critique, I guess, and, and I don't speak for any other cultures. I mean, it, it, this is quite a specific book. And so, you know, I am trying to, through a specific narrative, speak, you know, more universally to other cultures as well. But, um, you know, most Western women will be fully aware of feminism and the fact that we're into the third wave. And, you know, the fact that the Me Too movement came up as kind of like a belated reckoning, I guess, for women in Western society. Um, I think we don't really often speak about toxic masculinity and, you know, issues about sexism and patriarchy when it's other cultures, maybe because, you know, it's it's difficult for someone who's in the mainstream to actually critique another culture without coming across as racist. But I think we really need to start having authors from within a culture 
start questioning some of the norms. I mean, particularly um, in my culture, I mean, Confucian thought is not a religious um, kind of philosophy. It's just a way of thinking. And so it, it opens itself up to, you know, people actually speaking back to it and writing back to it after 2,500 years. I think we're sort of mature enough now to actually say, well, you know, there are aspects of this that are really, really needing to be pushed because um, we've really come a long way since then. And and to me, like, I, I think I made the, the father character in... Um, in the novel, it's, he's sort of like, you know, a distillation of Confucian thought, which I really dislike, which is we're just going to apply it the way it was written and we're not going to argue about, you know, whether or not it's appropriate for 2021. And, um, I mean, not every Chinese parent is going to love seeing, you know, Confucian thought being taken apart. But what I'm saying is if you read the Analects, which Confucius wrote, um, again, you know, they're the writings of a bunch of people stuck together under one sort of, you know, author name. Um, who knows when they were written, maybe 300 years after he spoke. So there could be a little bit of inconsistency there. And I, and I do highlight that in the book that, you know, on the one hand, he's saying a good and benevolent man has to be obedient. But then he also says a good and benevolent man has to do his own thing. And it's like, well, how do we do both? Because that's not possible. So um, what, I, what I was trying to, to show there was, we shouldn't be afraid to try and move that kind of thinking on if we can. And the analects have absolutely no place for women in them. So I can actually speak about it because I've read it from cover to cover now. There are basically two mentions of women in there. One is women are lumped in with servants and small men. You know, that, that's the kind of level of, you know, thinking that women kind of aspire to. And you should be good to your mum. That's pretty much the two kind of, you know, mentions of women in that entire thing. So one actually makes the comment at the end of the book, we've been trying to be good men. You know, me and mum have been trying to be good men in looking after Henry because that's what a good man would do. But it's kind of like a double-edged sword because I'm kind of saying, well, Confucian thought is great in that it's very filial and it's very sort of pious and we look after our parents and we listen to, you know, our elders and all that kind of stuff. But if you have to be good and benevolent, you know, by breaking the rules, then so be it. So that's kind of the discussion that's going on there. Yeah, I saw. I think. I, I think what I was getting at also is I saw in in that realization um, of of one's father's character maybe something that seems to be you know writ globally amongst powerful people or or people who who follow powerful people. This idea that they want to stay in, as you mentioned there, uh, an, an, an older-fashioned, very un, unmovable idea of, of how things are, whether that's a, a literal interpretation of, of a book or um, a very narrow interpretation of an ideology, and then sticking there and then just shutting out all other argument. And that idea of, of, of shutting out uh, one yeah. is very open in, in her life and she wants to open it up even further. But within her house, it feels uh, like the, the smaller that world can become, the more comfortable her, her father is, insofar as he's not very comfortable at all. And maybe we need to talk a little bit more about that. Um, yeah. he, is, he is such a dominant figure in her life. And that role of parents and parenting, 
looms large in our understanding of one's life and her dreams. Now, I I feel like I picked up on this correctly, that your title plays on the idea of tiger parenting, which was a term that was popularized back in 2011 with- um, Yeah, when the Amy Tribal came out. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. And I mean, anyone, quick Google search of that term, you will find that that is- that is not uncontested ground. That, that, that idea is still getting a lot of debate. And the term tiger mother, it evokes some, some stereotyped and really racialized ideas around parenting styles that I think mm. you were trying to problematize in Tiger Daughter. Your title also highlights that your protagonist, when it's foreshadowing a strength that she doesn't know she has at the book's opening. What did you want the title, though, to communicate to those potential readers? I think what I was trying to say was, you know, the, the idea of tiger parents is such a negative thing. And so I guess in the Western press, it's like, look how Asian parents do it. That's amazing. How could they force their children to do those things, right? So it's got a real, um, you know, negative cultural stereotype to it. And, you know, I'm fully the product of tiger parenting, so I completely understand it from inside out. And deliberately with my own children, I have a son and two daughters. Um, you know, I think I'm a little bit too lax. And I often laugh with my, you know, Chinese-Australian friends oh, my God, so failing as a tiger parent because I don't make them do anything. I keep telling them, for God's sake, drop that instrument. You are hopeless. You're not practicing. Like, why are you doing it for? None of us are forcing you to do it. So I think I've gone the other way and just become a little bit too slack about their schooling and and other things. But I was trying to reclaim that terminology because, you know, the people who come out of a tiger parenting situation, the children who survive that, they either break into pieces and completely, you know, like go off the rails or they come out sort of like, I like to say, they come out a harder, faster, meaner, you know, kind of brighter version of themselves because they've had to survive all this crap that's thrown at them constantly, all these standards, you know, all these hours of practice, all these things you're expected to do. You know, like for me, for example, I'm not a boy, but, you know, fully expected to be a good Chinese wife and mother, but also fully expected to be, you know, top of my field do well at school, do all these, you know, extra degrees, you know, do all that extra stuff, do those instruments, speak those languages. And, you know, like how are you expected to survive the whole superstructure that's just thrust upon you as a kid? So I think with the title, I was quite deliberately saying, sure, tiger parenting can be bad and it's pretty negative, but the people who come out of that, who actually draw strength from that whole crazy experience, it gives them sort of like, I think, extra facets that potentially someone you don't push, you know, may not have because they've, they've not had to deal with pressure from a young age and, you know, they'll, they'll never maybe ready, be ready for that kind of level of pressure. But, you know, some of us come out and, you know, it's like you're, you either come out as like someone who's been absolutely broken with a hammer or you come out like a diamond because you can deal with anything that's thrown your way. So that, that's kind of what I was trying to get, get to, I think. Now, I know from your author's note at the back of the book that something you value very highly is, is perhaps not always finding a single answer, but uh, that asking of the question why. And I yeah. think I think in Tiger Daughter, you've given this wonderfully complicated answer to what we were just discussing there in the form of four different parents, Henry's parents and one's parents. And well, for, for both one and Henry, mental health are this complicated, um, so perhaps sometimes mysterious and seemingly culturally conditioned ideas. And I wonder, I wonder if we can see in those parents perhaps a form of adulthood that comes out of a certain type of childhood. Um, in both one's 
father and Henry's mother, you present what I guess we we would look at as readers as they're both experiencing symptoms of depression, but in both mm-hmm. these also get reformulated into ideas of, of duty and how you meet the duties that you have as an adult and also styles of good and bad parenting. Mm. I wondered if these pre- – well, pre- well I, th- I thought I saw also these pressures being mirrored in one and Henry's attitudes to schooling. What did you want to draw out in this discussion around mental health and, and in the parallel between the parents and the children? Um, I think with with the father, and I won't give too many spoilers away, um, the father does sort of experience these periods of mental health um, crisis where he just lies in bed for days and days and can't get out of bed and, you know, he's about to lose his job and I think one's mum has to, like, beg um, his, you know, restaurant employer to take him back um, because they desperately need the, the cash. Um, it, it's that whole critique of, I guess, um, masculinity but within a particular cultural um, context and so, for example, you know there are massive, massive rates of male suicide in Australia, but that's often, you know, sort of not reframed as it's not just white males who suffer it. It's every male in Australia probably goes through that idea of how am I going to be a man if I don't meet the expectations of my family or I don't meet the expectations of my parents or you know I don't conform to some idea of what being a man in this society is. And so it was really me just saying. There are other Australians, those other Australians who aren't necessarily, you know, the beer-swilling guys who hang out on Cronulla Beach. These other Australians who are men also suffer mental health and they suffer mental health crises because, you know, for example, they don't get the job they want. They get ignored by people. They are subject to racism. They're subject to abuse. So they've got the whole layer of, you know, they're not, they're, they're failing as men in a, in a male world, but they're also failing as white men because they'll never be white men. So, you know, they're failing on these multiple levels. And that's that, that idea of intersectionality again. They're men, but they are also men who are subject to, you know, systems of racism or abuse or, you know, systemic bias or whatever. Um, and I guess with um, Henry's mum, who's a more extreme version of how do, you know, migrant people suffer depression. Um, you know, for women, for example, in a lot of cultures, there's that, there's that, that level of being trapped that feels like there is absolutely no way out unless you do something drastic. And so for the two of them, I was just trying to show, you know, there's there's people who suffer from, you know, depression who aren't necessarily the kind that we advertise on television who should be ringing Lifeline, for example, because maybe they don't have the language to be able to actually speak to someone on Lifeline. And then there's that sort of, you know, that the migrant woman who is literally trapped in her home and cannot get out, has no network, can't speak to anyone, you know, just is completely unable to access any help whatsoever. What happens to people like them and why aren't stories like theirs being told? And so um, I'm actually a bit of a gamer on the weekend, so I like sort of playing, you know, computer games on my apps or whatever. And I've really noticed during COVID um, particularly, and it's been quite unusual, the level of advertising that pops up between games um, about domestic abuse and, you know, family abuse and, the, you know, that women and children should actually speak up and ring this helpline, 1800 Respect. And the thing I've really noticed um, this year and last year in particular is that that advertising is coming up in games for children and it's also coming up in different languages. So I don't think I've seen one of those ads in English. I've just seen them in Arabic, you know, Indonesian, um, 
you know, Filipino. So just different languages because I think we're finally realising there are depressed people or trapped people in our society who cannot access government help, who cannot speak to anyone, who cannot actually ring someone and say, help me, I'm being abused at home. Um, and I think I was trying to say with Tiger Daughter, if you are a child in that kind of really unsafe environment, I completely see you and I'm, I'm trying to reflect your story back at you because you are not alone. Like this kind of stuff happens and it's about time we bloody recognised it. So this is kind of trying to do a lot of things, but it's, it's sort of saying to, you know, women and children who are in violent or abusive situations, there's actually hope at the end of the tunnel. It's going to be really hard to break yourself out of that box. But if you try really hard, things will change. I feel like we're coming a little full circle here because we have we have talked so much about language and we've just been talking there about mental health and we've given very short shrift to one's mother and her star- story arc is both harrowing but also hopeful. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot that we understand now as a society and that we're growing to understand more and more about the way abuse is not simply someone hitting someone it's not not necessarily physical violence but ideas around yeah. coercive control and financial abuse yeah. that seem really relevant um in in one's story and and her mother's story and then through uh i guess the narrative of through the necessity of one needing to help henry her mother is drawn out of the world that has been circumscribed around her um yeah. I, I, I talked to you off air about I, I, I completely understand why you structured the book the way you did. It is such a beautiful vignette, such a small part of these characters' lives. But is there more to explore in the character of Juan's mother? I, I, I wanted so much more because this is an incredible story. Mm. And it's a really common story. I mean, I think for a lot of migrant women who come here and English isn't their first language and, you know, they're learning how to speak English like I did off Countdown, for example, which is a music program. Um it's really sort of like they will never gain the fluency of their children in this culture. And so um, for one's mother, I did try and sort of, um, we did talk about this off air, introduce a kind of like tiny, tiny domestic quest narrative where we try and get the trapped woman, you know, out of the dungeon and into the sunlight. And so um, for the mother who literally just scurries around everywhere as if there's a, you know, um, a stopwatch on her um, and she's, literally only allowed to walk her daughter to school, buy food for the home and then stay at home. Um, I tried to sort of give her a hopeful narrative in that because she sort of helped Henry and his father, even though it's not really permitted to help, you know, the family of, I call it a disgraceful suicide. That's that's the word that one's father uses. Um, For her to be brave and for her to step out of, you know, the narrative of wife and mother, that's all you're allowed to be, um, for me, was a really important thing because I think, particularly in the generation above mine, um, I think a lot of migrant mothers, all that was ever expected of them was, for example, to raise a, a healthy son who could carry on the name and also just look after the children, keep the house, you know, get discounts on shopping, um, you know, look respectable. And that was about it. That was all that was sort of allowed for them to do. And so I think for um, the mother, I mean, just the tiny quest narrative here is, can she leave home? Can she be brave enough to actually, you know, go out and earn a living part-time, do something else? Um, it's such a small thing when you talk about it, but I think in the book it's quite a seismic shift for her. So she sort of thought, yeah, I am actually allowed to do other things. 
I don't just have to be a mother. I don't just have to cook the meals. I can actually go out and do something for myself. I can go out and help other people. And nothing, you know, the sky's not going to fall on my head. So that's kind of what I was trying to do with some women's mother's narrative. It's like I'm just opening up her world this tiny, tiny fraction on paper. But for her, it's like, you know, the, the sun coming out. It's like a completely different existence going forward for her in the book. Mm. I'm going to stop low-key just begging you for another book about all the characters that I loved so much other than to <laughs> other than to note just this incredible sort of visual juxtaposition that you create in the closed down world that can be so harmful and we see it see it actively being so harmful to one's father and then in multiple characters stories that sort of opening up almost like almost like a blossoming where their lives as they become wider and we were just talking about one's mother there they then come to touch other people's lives that in turn open up their worlds and that's that's a very oblique reference to i guess a seemingly innocuous side story to to one's story and one that I'm not going to say more about other than to note that it, it is it is a very, uh, I guess, small detail, but it's so beautiful in the way it touches those characters' lives. And we see this repeated in one story, in her friends, in Henry's. And it's, I mean, I, I talked, about, talked to you about how there were moments in this book that made me cry because so much was overcome. There was so much that was seemingly so heartbreaking and... Um, I think that was probably one of the powerful things that, that did that for me, the way you were able to balance those those two ideas. Yeah, I think for me, like, I, I don't know if it comes out at all, but I'm, I'm really big on building empathy. And so because I write for children, it's like, do you want to turn out to be a narrow, horrible person with a narrow, horrible life? Or would you rather be an empathetic person who's open to human connection and is willing to, you know, pay forward kindness? And so... For me, my philosophy is the more kindness you give people, the more it comes back to you. And I think with this story, it's like, it's also with racism as well. All the unkind things that you do in life, they have ripple effects into other lives. And so when you are unkind to a father, for example, he will be unkind to his family. And so that kind of thing flows on. And I think with my story, what I'm trying to show people is it's not weak and it's not bad to be a kind person who helps other people because the only way we make things like, you know, a COVID lockdown bearable is to make human connections with other people, which are based on kindness, because that's what gets you through those bad mental health episodes. Um, it's what makes your life better. So I think with this book, what I'm trying to show is acts of unkindness can ripple out, but acts of kindness absolutely ripple out and they touch so many people. And it's, it's such an opening thing and such a hopeful thing if, you know, you pay it forward all the time as much as you can. And that's a really beautiful point for us to to leave off there because we are at the, you know, very early stages of 2021. We are talking about a young adult novel that everyone should read. Don't don't get me wrong. This is not just a book for young adults to read, but school's going back. This is something that can be shared and reshared. I'm speaking with Rebecca Lim and we are discussing Tiger Daughter Um if you've not mistaken me, dear listener, I loved this book and I would thoroughly recommend it. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time on Final Draft today. Thank you so much. It's just been such a pleasure to talk with you um, about stuff that's sort of been sitting heavy on me for a long time. So it's great that people are sort of 
you know, getting all the kinds of um, issues and layers that I've built in there because I just want to talk to people about this stuff and it's, it's mm. great that I finally got the chance to do that. So thank you. That's it for our great conversation today with Rebecca Lim. Rebecca's novel Tiger Daughter is out now from Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You will find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Subscribe in your podcast app. There will be a new Great Conversation every week to enjoy. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Final Draft Great Conversations. Till then, happy reading. <laughs>